Good morning, ladies and gents. It is Thursday, April 14th, 2022. This is uh, Blues Views with some intraday comments. Uh, there's not uh, not too much in the way of new Wall Street research out today. Some company-specific pieces, um, mostly earnings previews, but um, I have to be careful uh, in terms of uh, commenting on specific companies just because, you know, I Blue Shirt Plus is exempt from the investment advisor registration requirements, but there are some stipulations to that. Uh, primarily, I can't give individual uh, advice. I can't or can't give advice tailored to individuals uh, via the Blue Shirt Plus vehicles, whether it's the Twitter feed or the podcast. And I also have to be very careful uh, to comment uh, when I comment on specific companies. Um, for instance, uh, you know, making a recommendation one way or another uh, on a company, um, particular stock, within a week or two before it reports earnings could be could be viewed as market timing. And it so, in general, I'm going to uh, try to avoid talking about individual companies, uh, at least in terms of earnings related stuff. So um, there was a there's a piece out today. Uh, Goldman Sachs puts out these weekly um, flow pieces. Um, this guy, Scott Rubner, uh, handles most of that stuff for them. He, he pretty much just sees all the flows coming through the, you know, the prime brokerage, the retail desk, all of them. So he kind of, uh, amalgamates all of that and, and gives, gives his clients the lowdown on, on what, what, where the flows are going and, and, and why perhaps. Uh, so just a couple of notes from him. Um, the um, the YOLO call buying <laughs> has slowed dramatically over the last couple of weeks, um, and I guess he's he's saying that he's getting a lot of people asking him why why is retail call buying dropping off so much? Uh, the primary reason for that he thinks is because uh, you know we were up the market was up so much last year, and, and most of these retail traders made so much money buying calls last year that they now have a big tax bill due, uh, so he expects the call buying to remain extremely depressed. Uh, until after Monday, um, Monday, I think it's the 18th. So, uh, he's, he believes that the, uh, the retail call buying frenzy will probably resume starting on Tuesday. Now as to whether or not that is a wise choice of action for retail traders, I think you guys are all pretty, you guys and gals, excuse me, are pretty clear on where I stand on that. Um, we have not had any real capitulatory selling yet. Uh, no one has really been put, well, I shouldn't say no one, but uh, many have not been put in the hurt locker for real yet. Um, there certainly are, uh, certainly, I mean, I know a couple back in San Diego, young guys who, you know, started out with their stimmy checks and, you know, turned those checks into quite a bit buying Tesla and QQQ calls. And uh, they both got totally run over in January and February. They were just too impatient, too aggressive. But, you know, looking at the the um, the habits, if you will, of retail, uh, they're getting smarter and smarter. They're not just in there buying this, you know, Tesla and Apple. I mean, they're they're diversifying out there. They're buying a lot of value. So, uh, you know, I know people, professionals in, in this business love to mock retail. Um, but it, it's, it's not a smart thing to do. It's a throwaway comment that's emotionally satisfying for, for professionals when they're, when they're not doing well, but it's not a it's not true or wise. I mean, the fact of the matter is, is that a lot 
uh, of retail investors are adapting. They're adapting their tactics, their habits. Uh, they're certainly rotating out of the same six or seven tech stocks uh, and looking at new sectors and factors and things like that. I mean, I think the group that's still totally addicted to the same six or seven mega cap tech stocks, it's the big institutional long onlys and pension funds. Those, I mean, they may have diversified a little bit more. They may have dumped some of their big tech exposure, but based on the numbers I've seen, it's not so much retail that, because remember, retail only accounts for, it accounts for a relatively small portion uh, of the total of overall trading volume. But these big long onlys and pension funds have massive allocations still to Apple, Amazon, Google, Microsoft, Tesla, et cetera. So if and when, and I think that's one of the reasons why the NASDAQ has remained so sticky and why it has just been so stubbornly refusing to correct uh, along the lines of what, you know, certainly interest rates would suggest it should have corrected by now. When you look at the move in interest rates, and I've gone through this before on previous podcasts, well, you know, you've had, re you know, the five-year real yield has been one of the best indicators for the NASDAQ for years. It's been rocketing higher and the NASDAQ has barely, you know, it's nowhere near its lows. It's a thousand points off of its lows. So, you know, just thinking about that for a second, thinking about how does that happen? How is it that all of a sudden this, you know, clockwork like correlation has just stopped working? And I think you have to look and say, well, it's because I think a lot of these you know, major institutional holders of these, of Apple, of Microsoft, uh, et cetera, are refusing to sell. I don't know whether they're just burying their heads in the sand and saying, I'm not selling come hell or high water. I don't know if they're having a, a Zoom call among themselves every week saying, hey, you know, let's let's boycott uh, selling. You know, let's let's just all agree not to sell our positions. And, and then we'll, you know, who knows what's going on? Um, but there's no question in my mind that there's a ton of cognitive dissonance, that the market is totally broken. And let me circle back to something that I've mentioned several times over the last six months or so. Um, over the last two to two and a half years, really since the pandemic began, the Treasury, the U.S. Treasury has found itself increasingly competing with Apple and Microsoft and Google and Amazon and Facebook and Tesla for financing funds. Like, so, you know, foreigners have been financing our current account deficit for a long, long time. That's just how the way the global economy has worked, right? We go out, we buy everyone's stuff, and then we need the, those, uh, those same people to finance our, our deficits. Treasuries have uh, you know, accounted for the vast bulk of those financing flows uh, for many, many years. But over the last two years in particular, those flows into treasuries from foreigners have dropped off. Um, and there's a lot of circumstantial evidence that they've been buying the mega cap tech stocks instead of treasuries. Now, it certainly explains why a stock like Apple just refuses to correct. Uh, and then, of course, the Russia-Ukraine situation. You know, you've had we, we had a burgeoning rotation out of U.S. stocks, which were, I mean, so overvalued relative to the rest of the world. Uh, after the last two years of just running higher in a straight line, pretty much, uh, people were starting to look elsewhere for value. They're looking at Europe. They're looking at emerging markets, looking at Japan, right? Um, and that stopped. That 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 whole process kind of got stopped in its tracks 
when Russia invaded Ukraine. All of a sudden, the U.S. once became, uh, once again became the safest place to put your money. And you can just visualize all these foreigners just saying, whatever, just buy Apple, it never goes down, right? So uh, again, but that's a major problem for the Treasury. The Treasury has enough difficulty as it is financing our deficits. It cannot be competing with Tim Cook. So what I've been talking about here the last couple of weeks in terms of the Fed now targeting the stock market for, for pain, I mean, that this is all connected. Okay, the Treasury cannot allow mega cap tech companies to compete with them for flows. It just can't. And so what we're seeing right now, you know, where I mean, because we're we're used to seeing any bond market correction uh, not last very long, whether it's because the Fed was stepping in or some kind of intervention. OK, there is I mean, watching TLT, there is just there's no bid for this thing. You know, there there is no longer this soft landing mechanism in place, at least it would seem. Uh, one of the things that, that Scott Rubner points out in his notes today is that over the last six years, the amount of money that's flowed into bonds is six times what's flowed into stocks. The bond market is so much bigger than the stock market. And you've got a tremendous amount of pain in the bond market right now. And you've got a lot of people hanging on for dear life, hoping for a bounce. I'm not sure that bounce is coming. Uh, it is now in the interest of the Fed and the Treasury to let that market work its way downward. It's the only way, ultimately, that they're going to get control of this mega cap tech stock act, acting as Treasury alternatives mechanism under control. It's it's got to be willing to create enough pain on the on the yield side to finally force people out of those stocks. Um, now, I mean, this is obviously a dangerous game that they're playing, but you know, there's no, I mean, based on what the Fed, whether it's Studley or Brainerd or even Powell has been saying since the Fed meeting, and so far it still does remain all talk. That is a fair criticism of the thesis. I have this thesis. People have criticized it very fairly by saying, you know, hey, Tim, like they, they, they've been talking tough for months. They still haven't really done anything. I, can, I mean, it's true. So you have to ask yourself, do you think the Fed really will begin to follow through on its threats? I certainly do. I don't think that they have a choice. I mean, the Fed cannot allow itself to be summarily ignored by the stock market. If it, it, it is just being shown zero respect, and, and this is a problem that the Fed has earned on its own. It has how many times over and over and over again has it proven that it's going to come to the come to the rescue in the stock market whenever there's a slight little blip. So people have been programmed to expect the Fed to have their back. I, I really think the Fed is going to war with Wall Street here. And it's not the first time this has happened. I mean, we had a I wouldn't say it's a similar situation in the early 80s, but we had inflation out of control. Now, I mean, back then, equity valuations were much, much, much lower than they are now. But listen, Wall Street wasn't it, Wall Street didn't want Volcker to do what he was doing. Um, and, you know, the action in the stock market in the early 80s uh, initially was was pretty bad. Uh, Wall Street was not happy about it at all. So you could argue that back then Volcker was at war with Wall Street. Fast forward 40 years later, a very different set of details and particulars. But Wall Street and the Fed are back at war. And, and I don't see enough people talking about this. Um, I the, the complacency out there 
is as high as I can ever remember it. I mean, the fact that, you know, we've watched this bond meltdown and stocks really haven't done very much. It's almost as if people are like, you know what? I know the math is supposed to matter, but until it actually matters, I'm just going to hold. hold. Um, and so again, forcing the Fed to take it a step further, to escalate this battle, uh, to regain control over U.S. equity markets, which are totally broken. I'll say it again. <laughs> a couple more comments from Scott Rubner. Um, he notes that the big, uh, the biggest by far, the biggest buyers of U.S. stocks this year are corporates, corporations themselves. Uh, over a trillion dollars in buybacks this year. That's what they're estimating at Goldman Sachs. Uh, he does note that 95% of companies are in their buyback blackout right now. Obviously, we have earnings coming up, and that's why. Uh, what else here? He, let's see. Oh, an interesting note, kind of an obvious one. But, you know, these these big, oh, oh so the um, U.S. equities have benefited massively from that flight to safety I mentioned uh, after the Russia invade, invaded Ukraine. Uh, they've seen the largest monthly inflows into the U.S. relative to the rest of the world ever in history over the last month. Now, the point that he makes that I want to touch on here is the fact that the vast majority of these flows are passive. So people just kind of blindly fly, you know, flight to safety, just get my money back to the U.S., get it in the U.S. stock market. It just goes into QQQ and SPY, which means that Apple and Microsoft, et cetera, get the bulk of that money. So this is just fueling, it's refueling this major passive investing bubble that started to break down earlier in the year. Now, with the Russia-Ukraine situation kind of fading into the background a little bit, I know it's not over, but it's certainly not at the top of anyone's uh, set of risks right now, at least doesn't seem to be. It stands to reason that this refueling of that passive investment bubble should start to unwind again. Now, ultimately, it's going to come down to earnings, right? I mean, we all know that Q1 earnings have been sandbagged. Q1, Q1 earnings estimates have been heavily sandbagged because that's what Wall Street does. I think everyone's fairly aware of that. And I think everyone is, is, is rightly focused on the outlook for Q2 and for the rest of the year. It's anyone's guess as to how much uh, granularity and clarity these companies are going to provide. Uh, it's in their interest to provide as little as possible <laughs> without pissing people off, right? So there, I mean, there's no doubt in my mind that Q, Q1 numbers, uh, I would imagine that they're, we're probably going to see a very high beat rate. Uh, again, this is Wall Street is a master at playing the sandbagging game. But there's really nowhere to hide from the fact that Q, Q2, Q3, and Q4 numbers, I, I think they're just way too high still. They're going to ignore that problem as long as they possibly can. Um, and whether that's in the days and weeks after Q1 earnings are reported, I don't know. But the fact of the matter is, is that um, this excitement that's starting to build a little bit about earnings, I mean, obviously Apple on, on April 28th is the big one. And look... The NASDAQ and the S&P, their downside is going to be very limited unless Apple finally corrects. You know, we all know they're a great company. We all know they have deep competitive moats. I, I'm sorry. I just, you're going to tell me they're worth $3 trillion. I just don't believe you. <laughs> I think it's ridiculous. I mean, they're now accounting for what, almost 2% of GDP or something. So, you know, the, Apple in particular has been a major holdout. It has found, and I mean, Tesla's been another one. They just keep finding buyers on every bid. And again, I think a lot of what's gone on is 
people, foreigners in particular, are, are perfectly content to just buy Apple because it never goes down. You know, I don't want my money here in Europe. Uh, I don't, you know, I, I don't want my money here in, you know, China's seeing a big slowdown. I want my money in Asia. I want, I want my money parked in the U.S., you know, just by, whether they're saying just buy Apple or just buy SPY, it's basically the same thing, right? So much of that money is going into Apple. So I think it's impossible to overstate the importance of this Apple earnings report. I'm sure their numbers are going to be great relative to Q1 estimates because they never miss, ever. We can get into why that is another time. I don't know how much guidance they're going to give. I'm sure they're going to, if they have, I'm sure they're going to say as little as they can if they're worried, right? Uh, and we know that, you know, I, I, I mean, I think there's what, like 95% of the analysts covering Apple have a buy rating on it. A few couple have a hold or neutral. <laughs> so we all know that the analysts are going to spin it as positive. The question, of course, is going to be, do these big long onlys, these big, these pension funds, the ones that own it in size that have been hiding in it for a long time, what, when do they finally, do they ever finally hit the sell button? Because remember, they don't have to go in there and say, oh God, you know, we got to sell all our Apple. They just have to trim their position a little bit, trim 10, 15% of their position. And that creates potentially a passive, uh, passive investing tsunami. It's not going to take much to get this thing moving to the downside. I really believe that. Uh, now, that being said, this is a company that is, of course, extremely, I mean, it's as well positioned as any company in the history of humanity. There are compelling reasons to say, you know what, I'm not selling my Apple stock. I'm just going to hold it and hold it and hold it because it's been working for a long time. And it has been. I think ultimately, we're going to have to get some kind of a sense that their story is breaking down. I mean, look, they have next to no one. They've, they haven't innovated in a long time. It's just been their iPhone cycle for the most part, right? The iPhones obviously are improving at a rate that's keeping people buying the new ones all the time. But now you have a situation where the consumer has gotten pinched, is getting pinched very badly. Is there a dent now in the upgrade cycle narrative? Apple ultimately is a consumer goods company right? They are highly levered to consumer spending. And there are a lot of problematic signs for consumer spending. But again, the point is, isn't whether or not they see or feel the pinch. It's what does it take to get these big long onlys and pension funds actually trimming their Apple positions? Because if they don't, if they're just like, we're happy with what we heard, we're standing pat, you know, the indexes are probably going to continue to hold up pretty well. Like it's, you know, it's just very hard for me to imagine, especially with, you know, the bulk of the stocks in the NASDAQ having already corrected pretty heavily. How do we get the NASDAQ down to 10 or 11,000 without a significant correction in these big tech stocks, Apple in particular? The math just doesn't work out. Now, I had talked uh, in a tweet yesterday about potentially building a big position and Apple puts into the earning into the earnings print. Now, the, the reason for that isn't so much. I mean, everyone's worried about consumer spending and all that stuff. But this is apparently I don't follow Apple that closely in terms of what they report quarter to quarter. But in uh, some several sources have pointed out that this is the toughest set of comps that Apple has faced in a long time. So between the pressure. I, I again, I have no doubt that they're gonna. They're probably gonna blow away 
analyst estimates for Q1 because they always do. The whole thing is a joke. Okay. But I think enough people, most people are looking through that to, okay, what's going to happen throughout the balance of the year? Because they're not immune to consumer spending slowdown. Right. And, um, oh gosh, what was I going to say? Sorry. Oh, and, and they're facing the toughest comps that they faced in years throughout the balance of the year. So this is probably as good a setup for an Apple short as we've had in a very long time. Now, shorting Apple has been a losing proposition <laughs> for a very long time, unless, of course, you are in and out very quickly. Um, so I'm not sure if we will actually do anything. And if we do, how big we'll go. I'll, I'll have to think about it. I have another couple of weeks to think about it. Um, but I just I did just want to point out, like, I mean, it, it's, an, it's essential for equity bears to understand that without Apple getting involved in the bear market, without Apple, I mean, I think to be aggressively naked short the S&P and NASDAQ, I think you have to, you have to believe that Apple can see 120, 130 at a minimum. So just food for thought there. I mean, obviously, uh, I'm a tech bear. I haven't been for a while. But, you know, we're, we're still beta neutral. Our trades are beta neutral. And there's a really good reason for that. <laughs> right? So just food for thought. What, if anything, is going to get these big institutional holders of Apple who, by any measure that I've seen, are over allocated to the stock? What's going to get them to finally say, you know what? It's been a great run. We need to lighten up on this stock. Food for thought. We'll talk to you again next week. Everyone have a very happy holiday weekend.